No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Ed Sherman talks about the history of the Big Ten Conference. Jim Delaney was a new commissioner, and the next step was, okay, what are we going to change the name to? We've got 11 schools, we've got to change the name. And he immediately got this pushback from people, no, no, we're not changing the name, we're the Big Ten. That name had that brand, that identification. Plus, Steve Morantz tells the story of a South Sudanese refugee who became one of the best high school athletes in Nebraska history. He came to America in 2002 with his family. They fled a civil war in in Sudan. And I think for Akoi, basketball was his uh, route into uh, assimilation. Also, Norman Chad discusses the state of the Washington Redskins. It's amazing that the Redskins have gone from essentially the only thing in Washington that counts to radio set. The doors are open and you can come in any time and buy some batteries and there's no line. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life, our special Thanksgiving edition, which means we'll be joined by a man who really embodies the holiday spirit, the couch slouch himself, Norman Chad. That's coming up later in the show, but first, interesting goings-on in the world of the heavyweight division particularly as it pertains to the American champion, Deontay Wilder, and a rematch, which he is scheduled now to have in February against the Englishman Tyson Fury. To discuss the state of all things heavyweight, we welcome our old friend, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Bryn, what did you make of the fight last week, the Wilder rematch with Ortiz? You know, I don't, I don't, I can't think of another fighter like Deontay Wilder, who throws more red meat to his supporters and his detractors with every fight that he puts on. He lost, I thought, conservatively, five of the first six rounds before he knocked out Ortiz in such iconic fashion. Um, so it's, it's very strange with somebody like Wilder that I just don't think we know what we're looking at, and people are trying to figure it out. Um, I think historically... If you go back to some of the great fighters in the heavyweight division, it's easy to forget that Joe Frazier was a three and a half to one favorite against George Foreman, another big puncher who was undefeated. People didn't see enough with Foreman to think what would eventually happen in that fight, just annihilating Joe Frazier. The same thing was true with Sonny Liston and and a young Cassius Clay, where Liston was an eight to one favorite. It was also true with Rocky Marciano, who was a 65 underdog against a 37-year-old shot Joe Lewis. So I think Wilder is kind of suffering the same issue, is we're just not sure if we can trust what we're looking at. You spent a lot of time around Deontay Wilder. You spent a lot of time in the last few years thinking about the arc of his career, how he's gotten to where he is, what kind of a fighter he is. Have we ever seen, have we ever seen anyone like this, though? who's got so much power and yet um, can seem so lost in the same fight within seconds of, of displaying these different traits. I spent some time with him last year at his training camp in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I really liked him, but as I was watching him sparring and shadow boxing, 
I, I've never seen a right hand like he can throw. I mean, before him, it was Felix Sabone, where the right hand was almost metaphysical, how powerful it was, uh, which he doesn't really throw that often in sparring or increasingly in a lot of his fights. And yet, a lot of the rest of the time, his footwork seems to resemble like a recovering stroke addict, stroke victim in an old folks' home pushing a walker. It, it is dazzling how bad his footwork is, how amateur he looks, how raw for somebody who's 34 years old and is undefeated. Bryn Jonathan Butler, the boxing scribe, the author most recently of The Grand Master, a book about chess, and he's written extensively about Deontay Wilder, who won his rematch last week with Luis Ortiz and is now scheduled to fight Tyson Fury in a rematch on February 22nd. That is the latest news this is a done deal, right? We're speaking here on Wednesday morning of Thanksgiving week, the day before Thanksgiving. It's a done deal. Vegas, February 22nd, Bryn? Nothing is a done deal in boxing. I'll believe it when I see them get into the ring <laughs> and the bell rings. But I think so. I think it is probably going to happen. There's a lot of money there. And Tyson, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder put on a great show last time. All of the boxing writers who were at the training camp I was said the same thing watching Wilder spar. If he doesn't knock Fury out, he is probably going to lose every round. And that basically bore out in their first fight. Yeah. So here we are again. And, you know, one of the features that was quite unusual for, for Wilder Ortiz on Saturday at the MGM Grand is a lot of writers were talking about how many tickets had to be given away just to have 10,000 people there watching him. So he's not been able to go over yet with the public and resonate despite Showtime and a lot of people really pushing him as this great American heavyweight. But he hasn't had a lot of purchase with the boxing public, let alone the broader sports public, the casual sports fan. Why is that, Bryn? Why is that? Why, why aren't people excited about a guy who might be the greatest puncher ever? That's the big question mark. I, I like his personality, and I think he presents himself in a very WWE kind of way, screaming this bomb squad thing, even holding, cradling his daughter in his arms. She's probably deaf in one ear from all his victories and screaming it out. But I don't know why he hasn't gained more popularity, because he is a compelling person. He's got a great backstory. Um, he hails from a very interesting southern town. Uh, big football town, obviously, but he has not been able to go over. And my guess would be the person that I interviewed one-on-one -on -one in his office of his gym, if he allowed that to come out a little more, I think he would go over more with the public. We're speaking with Bryn Jonathan Butler about Deontay Wilder, who is in position now for a rematch with Tyson Fury. We saw the first fight now almost a year ago where Fury got up from uh, two knockdowns, especially devastating one. What was that in the 10th round, the 11th round? Uh, it, it didn't seem anybody could get up from that, that punch. He got up and Tyson Fury in that moment, um, he, he didn't just survive, uh, the knockdown. I mean, it was almost like his career rose from the ashes too. Uh, where he had been over 400 pounds. His story, very compelling. He's a guy who, you know, has captured a segment of the population's imagination. Is there any reason to believe when this fight takes place about 15 months after their initial fight that anything's changed for either of these guys? 
Well, Fury has been so up and down, and, and I agree with you. I think that was kind of the comeback story of the decade in boxing with what Fury was able to do. It was um, incredible. And they had great chemistry, the two of them. Uh, I don't see any sign that Wilder uh, is deteriorating at 34. I mean, he started boxing famously very late, but he's getting less and less active and more willing to lose rounds, but he has this tremendous equalizer. Uh, Fury, if Fury comes in, I think there's still more room for improvement. I mean, he dropped just a huge amount of weight, well over 100 pounds. If he's able to come in even better shape, I mean, potentially he could put on a better performance. But at any moment, I think with with Wilder, what we're all waiting for is what happens when he lands that right hand. And maybe it is the greatest right hand in the history of boxing. It's certainly up there and in the conversation. So I, I think that's what makes it a very exciting fight. But I think the big problem for Wilder at this point is the resume. That is what has been his big challenge in going over with the public and I think being taken seriously by his critics is he's 34. He's been heavyweight champion for quite a while now. Who has he beat? We want to see him fight the elites. We want to see them fight a lot more often. And we want to see them fight at the right time. And we've already seen that spoiled with what Ruiz Jr. was able to do with Joshua. It's, it's a different heavyweight landscape now. But Deontay certainly with that right hand has the potential to rise above all of them. But at the same time, we've seen some liabilities. In the first fight with Luis Ortiz, he was all, he's maybe 10 seconds away from being knocked out and could have become a, a sort of contemporary Michael Grant when Grant fought Lennox Lewis to see who was, who was the real deal. So that's what makes it interesting is, is we just don't know what's going to happen. And, and Wilder, you know, probably there's going to be destruction in one direction or the other. It's not going to be boring. Bring Jonathan Butler writes about boxing for the undefeated, for Esquire, for the Paris Review, writes about other subjects as well. His most recent book is The Grand Master. Britt, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. When you think about college sports and the landscape of college sports over the last century and a half, there are a few conferences, of course, that are more important than others. One of those conferences, of course, is the Big Ten, which hasn't actually had 10 teams in it in quite some time, but we still call it the Big Ten. And now there is a new book which celebrates the history of Big Ten athletics. It's titled, This is Big, How the Big Ten Set the Standard for College Sports, published by the Big Ten. And it is written by our old friend Ed Sherman, a longtime reporter for the Chicago Tribune, who joins us now. Ed, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. It's great. to I enjoy your show and glad to be uh, be a part of it. Well, I know you're up early on the weekend, so you really don't have any choice. There's nothing else to listen to other than the sporting life. You know, it's just kind of stuck no, there. It's great. But I, but, it's great but, driving into Chicago. <laughs> when I do my radio show, you're on at uh, 5 in the morning or replays on at 5 in the morning, and, I, and it makes my drive back uh, to a golf show in, in the summers. And That's one of our best slots, actually, anywhere in the country. I'm improving. So. <laughs> I'm helping your ratings. Glad to do it. <laughs> so, Ed, you know, this is a big story to tell, and it's a beautiful book. It's kind of a it's a picture book, a coffee table book, but there's a lot of there's a lot of meat there as well. How do you even wrap your head around telling the story of so many different schools and so many different sports? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and you know, and I kind of 
I just want, you know, and I kind of go back to what you, um, you kind of alluded that the big 10, uh, stays, the, is, it remains the big 10, even though there's now 14 schools in it. And there's kind of even a story that kind of gets to the heart of where you begin. Um, when, when the big 10 added Penn state, uh, in 1990, 1990, uh, Jim Delaney was a new commissioner and he just started, uh, I don't even know if he'd been on the job for a whole year, but he was brand new and he kind of went, uh, the next step was, okay, what, what are we going to change the name to? We've got 11 schools. We've got to change the name. And, you know, he hadn't had been around in this big 10 culture for a long time. And he immediately got this pushback from people. No, no, we're not changing the name. We're the big 10. doesn't matter, you know, how many schools we have. And Penn state even said, we joined the big 10, you know, and that name had that brand, that identification, um, that, you know, that had gone on for since the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. And, uh, and I think that's kind of where you start, trying to get your arms around telling to tell the story. And you kind of tell the story from the beginning. You know, the Big Ten was the first conference, uh, 1895. Uh, it was founded, and it was really founded not because of sports, that they, wanted to fi- uh, that they wanted to form a conference and play games. It was an attempt by the presidents, seven presidents who met in the Palmer House in Chicago, to kind of get this, their arms around this new college idea of college sports, that college sports were being played on their campuses in the late 19th century. And it was pretty much the wild, wild west uh, mentality. You had, uh, you know, obviously you had pros, you had athletes who didn't intend school, and then you also had athletes who were playing on multiple schools. And they wanted to try to get their arms around it. It was the first attempt in what has been an ongoing attempt, you know, ongoing quest, you know, through, through today to try to, make this thing about athletics and academics. And that's kind of where I started uh, and went from there. It's a great story. There's a lot of athletes, you know, to tell stories of and a lot of great twists and turns too. It's really kind of did, you know, the big 10 being the first conference and being the first in so many things, it was, there's just so much to write about and it was very exciting to be able to do it. We're speaking with Ed Sherman, longtime sports writer for the Chicago Tribune, author of, Several books. His latest is This Is Big, How the Big Ten Set the Standard in College Sports. And it is a celebration, a documentation of the history of the Big Ten in sports. And, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's a statement sure to start some, some debates, how the Big Ten set the standard <laughs> in college sports. Um, but but one of the things that interests me most as someone who's covered the landscape of college sports for a long time is is the push and pull, the tension between the athletic mission of big schools and the academic missions, and sometimes the ways in which they certainly enhance each other and complement each other, and the ways sometimes in which uh, they they butt up against each other. Mm-hmm. How has the Big Ten for a hundred and thirty years almost managed? that dynamic and done it so well? Well, it's interesting. You know, obviously nobody's perfect and they've had their issues. And um, that's what Joey Brown said in some like it hot, right? Nobody's perfect. It's, it's right. the same, <laughs> but uh, right. But, uh, but uh, they did kind of, you know, they did try to at least, you know, throughout their, throughout their history, try to do things that kind of uh, put academics first. Initially they had no freshman playing. Uh, in the early 1900s, and they kept that all the way through, you know, the 1970s. They 
for a long time. They didn't even participate participate in bowl games until 1947, and uh, when they signed their deal with the Rose Bowl. And then it was until the early 70s that they allowed other teams to go to the Rose Bowl. I think you had a uh, other team to go to bowl games. You had a because they didn't want to have these, and they also had a, a no repeat rule because they felt like it was going to be. You know that you couldn't go to the Rose Bowl two years in a row because it would be taking students out of student athletes out of school too much. And when I and and and, um, and for I think it was nineteen seventy five was the first time that they allowed more than one team to go to a bowl game. So those great Bo Schembechler teams of the early seventies, I think they went thirty two and one over a three year period, something like that. And, I, and they did not go to a bowl game, which is hard to believe. Um, so they kind of took these steps to try to, um, uh, you know, to try to start somewhat kind of rein in, you know, give, give give these kids some balance, give these athletes some balance. I think one of the things that they did very well was on the um, on the women's sports side, and I and I write about that in the book with a, a chapter about how they 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 eventually, with not without a lot of struggle. Uh, came in and and uh, incorporated women's sports and lift up the lifted up the participation numbers when Jim Delaney took over in 89 I think it was 72 to 28 and the percentage men to female athletes and he wanted to do something about that and put a not a voluntary mandate it wasn't required but he asked the schools to eventually get to 60 40 and from 60 40 they're now pretty much 50 50 14 men's sports 14 women's sports so I think those are steps that the Big Ten has taken to try to, you know, give opportunity and also try to um, uh, get their arms around this whole thing of athletics and academics and having them mix go together. Well, we could talk about the Big Ten from now until the end of time, but uh, you could, on the other hand, just buy Ed Sherman's new book, which is "This Is Big: How the Big Ten Set the Standard in College Sports." And I think that's a very fair argument to be made. Ed, uh, congratulations on the new book. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on The Sporting Life to discuss, uh, as best we could in only 10 minutes, the entire history of the Big Ten. <laughs> well, thanks. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you. You're one of my favorite guys in the business, and I wish you continued success. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Citizen Akoi, Basketball in the Making of a South Sudanese American, is a new book by my old friend and colleague Steve Morantz, and it tells the story not only of an immigrant to the United States, not only of basketball, not only of assimilation in Omaha, Nebraska, for someone who's coming from such a different place, South Sudan, the newest nation in the world, although at the time that uh, Citizen Akoi came here, it was not yet an independent nation. This is a book about so many different things, and it is uh, a pleasure to welcome to The Sporting Life, Steve Morant. Steve, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, thanks for, for having me. I appreciate it. Steve, who is Citizen Akoi? His name is Akoi Agal. Um, he was a South Sudanese refugee who came to America in uh, 2002 with his family. Um, they fled a civil war in, in Sudan, and uh, they first settled in Maryland for a year. Um, and by the way, their first Thanksgiving was in Maryland. Um, as we speak, Thanksgiving is is tomorrow, and uh, there's a chapter in the book called First Thanksgiving, and it, 
um, the <laughs> they were uh, they were the subject of a story by the Baltimore Sun on their first Thanksgiving, and they basically told the reporter how thankful they were to be in America um, out of the Civil War and with an opportunity to to build a new life. But um, they stayed in Maryland for a year and uh, went to Omaha because... Where you're from. Yeah, where I'm from. So I have some roots there, so that's how I knew of this story. Um, uh, unknown, Unbeknownst to a lot of uh, Americans, Omaha has the... Uh, largest population of South Sudanese expatriates in the country, about 10,000. And how, how did that happen? How did, how did Omaha become the place uh, where so many South Sudanese uh, started their American dreams? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it was that there were, there were jobs there in the uh, poultry and meat uh, plants. They were decent-paying jobs. Um, and they didn't require a you know, high level of education um, or English skills. And uh, housing was pretty affordable. You could get a decent place to live there and not, you know, use up all your paycheck. And, and the other thing, a couple other things, the school system, the public school system is very good and has been for a long time. And, and they knew that was a way to get a leg up for, to get their kids a good education and then there's something intangible about, you know, Omaha and that part of Nebraska. It's, it's, um, it's open-minded. It's, uh, it's compassionate. It, there's, a, there's a tradition there of, you know, opening up to, uh, to newcomers, a long tradition of, uh, of uh, refugees coming into Omaha. So, um, you know, it was a combination of, uh, of uh, factors. We're speaking with Steve Morantz about his new book, Citizen Akoi, Basketball and the Making of a South Sudanese American. And Akoi Agao, he ends up being a great high school basketball player, leading his team to four straight state championships at Omaha Central. Uh, as you say, one of the most successful high school athletes in the history of the state. How... How did basketball play a role in his uniquely American journey? Yeah, you know, you, right off the top, you mentioned that this was about assimilation. And, you know, for every refugee or immigrant family, it's, it's about trying to fit into to the American life. And, and I think for Akoi, you know, basketball was his, his uh, route into uh, – uh, assimil- assimilation. I mean, it was uh, clearly he had uh, athletic skills that were desirable to, you know, American coaches. He was tall, uh, strong, fast, very, you know, he had a, he was very coordinated and um, he was noticed by a lot of uh, amateur coaches in Omaha and, and high school coaches recruited him. So, uh, you know, not <laughs> Let me, you know, be clear. Not every immigrant or refugee has the athleticism that Akoi has, but <clears throat> he saw it as a way to to uh, help himself to become part of the community, and you know, in, uh, ultimately to help his family. I think, uh, Steve. What is the larger story you're telling about what it means in the 21st century to be an immigrant in the United States? 
particularly from a place like South Sudan, from sub-Saharan Africa, from a place that was immersed for so long, the longest-running civil war on the planet. Yeah, you know, they, they came out of a terrible, terrible civil war and upheaval in that country. And, and his mother's story is the first chapter of the book, and she had a, an awful, you know, story to tell about fleeing from gunmen and running through, you know, deserts and jungles just to, you know, to stay alive. Um, and she was an, a woman of incredible courage and bravery um, in getting her family out, out of uh, Sudan. They, they went to Cairo, Egypt for three, three or four years, um, you know, lived off menial jobs. Um, and her husband joined her. He also was a victim of the civil war and he got out of Sudan. But, you know, the larger story is that, you know, I don't have to, I mentioned the political context of the time we live in today. Um, you know, it's a very controversial subject, immigrants, um, walls on our Southern border, illegal immigrants. Now the, you know, the Agal family were legal. McCoy's mother studied and studied and, learned about the Constitution, and she, she became a citizen in 2009. And because of that, her, her children were able to have an easier route to citizenship. But I think the bigger story is that, you know, while we wring our hands about the threat and danger of immigrants on our southern border and, um, you know, what it what it. Uh, risk or threat it is to the American way of life, according to certain people. You know, you have this immigrant refugee from Africa who came to Omaha, Nebraska, and so enriched the community by his experience there, by what he brought to Omaha. And Omaha Central High School, which is my alma mater, so I know the story. I I know what he meant to the people in the hallways of that school and the teachers and the the administrators. And they, they, you know, they, they called him the ambassador when they were trying to recruit kids to get, you know, to bring eighth graders to sign up for Central High. They would, they would have a coy, you know, usher the kids through the hallways and talk about the school. So, um, you know, it's a beautiful story of how, this refugee family was embraced by the city of Omaha and by the high school. And I, I just felt that, you know, in the, in this time, in this day and age, it was, it was worth telling because of, because of everything else we're hearing and going through. It is a story about immigration and America in the 21st century. Steve Morantz's latest book is Citizen Akoi, Basketball and the Making of a South Sudanese American, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Steve, congratulations. It's always a pleasure. I'm glad we could catch up. And um, thank you for coming on The Sporting Life. Jeremy, you're always so gracious. I, uh, thanks for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. When I think of the holidays and the holiday spirit, what it means to give and to share, to celebrate both individually and collectively, I think of none other than Norman Chad. In a Santa suit, granting wishes, spreading cheer. The bad Santa of the world of sports, 
and of wagering too. If Chris Kringle were a middle-aged curmudgeon with alimony payments to be made in perpetuity, he would look something very much like the one and only Norman Chad, our old friend who joins us now. Norman, it's uh, it's uh, the week of Thanksgiving. How are you celebrating? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you this Thanksgiving week for, for having the courage to still call me. Uh, you know, I often deride you to strangers, you know, for your nose in the air, Ivy League background, for your white privilege, your 1% mentality, uh-huh. for the stench, the absolute stench of old Eastern money. But you still have the guts and fortitude to call me. So I, I appreciate that. It's not guts or fortitude. I mean, it's just good content. You know, uh, good content trumps everything else. And um, to me, you know, when we have you on, that's our A-plus game. In fact, and, uh, you know, we've been talking about this, just kind of like throwing it around in the bullpen. You know, what if we had a show, just the two of us, a daily or even an hourly show? So I just wrote a letter uh, to Trog Keller. Uh, an executive at ESPN who makes decisions about such things, proposing that we do uh, such a show. And uh, I described uh, the appeal of this show, or at least what I think would be the appeal of this show, is kind of a stream of consciousness unconnected to the world around us, featuring yours, uh, your, that is Norman Chad's uniquely jaundiced perspective and I finished the note by saying, great idea, right. What kind of response do you think I'm going to get from uh, from the fourth floor where the executives hang out? I think that is not only probably an immediate tossing into the spiritual circular file, <laughs> but on certain bad weeks, that could be a career ender for you to even suggest it. You think so? You think I should have waited until I had had my first cup of coffee to send... To send that note was probably a bad idea. Like the old thing that when you actually have a, an idea or a rant or you're really mad at somebody to, to like put that idea into the, the nightstand drawer, let it sit for 24 to 48 hours, take another look at it and see if you still want to hit send. You apparently have already hit send. I did. And you'd be, you'd be better off if you sent it in a message in a bottle out to the Black Sea. But thank you once again. Uh, like I said, I appreciate the, the fact that you, you know, that you even call me once, once every blue moon. Uh, you know, my parents don't even call me anymore, uh, except on my birthday, like every third or fourth year. So yes, let's see what Trout says. Uh, good luck and God bless. We're speaking with Norman Chad, the couch slouch, the one and only. Um, Norman, I, I gotta ask you because you're, you're a DC guy. Although you haven't lived there since the Ford administration, you're still a DC guy in a way. And, um, the Redskins continue to astound with their ineptitude. Uh, when you look across the general metropolitan area up like 45 minutes towards Baltimore and you see John Harbaugh, who was hanging on by the skin of his teeth to his job last year with Joe Flacco at quarterback, and now he's won, what have they won, seven games in a row. They drafted Lamar Jackson, albeit with the last pick of the first round a couple years ago. Lamar Jackson right now doing things no one's ever done. And the Ravens, again, look like a team that could do anything, go as far as it wants to go. As a Redskins guy, uh, someone from D.C., how does it make you feel to see the Ravens in this position now? I have no opinion on the Ravens. Uh, They should be, first of all, the Baltimore Colts, as we know. So I have an opinion there, but we won't go there. 
So I, I, I am not a, I don't have anything pro or negative for the Ravens other than the fact that the Harbaugh's in general, you know, who's, who's, I believe their, their family motto is why not us? Uh, Jim Harbaugh, John Harbaugh, their father taught that. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Why, why not us? Apparently, again, it's some sort of weird, uh, genetic privilege. You know, why not us? Like, you know, we're who we are, so yes, we can cut the line. John Harbaugh spent 27 years as like an assistant before he got a head coaching job anywhere. I don't think he cut the line. We're just going to have to agree to disagree about about the Harbaugh's. Okay, and again, and the, the, the Harbaugh's. By the way, the Harbaugh's mentality, and, and Jim's now no longer in the NFL. Is that you know they they will they will challenge as far as the challenge rule goes. You know they will challenge a stoplight. <laughs> They will they will challenge the U.S. Postal Service. They challenge everything, and they don't lose well. So I, I have no regard for the Ravens other than the fact that I generally root against John Harbaugh. But uh, the, the, the fact that you brought up you know this Redskins thing in which they've actually incredibly taken uh, a situation in which they literally had tens of thousands yep. of people on a season waiting ticket waiting line, for decades uh, to, to get season tickets. Waiting for decades, you know, families waiting, you know, people literally generations coming and going without getting Redskins season tickets, and they've turned that into Radio Shack. Uh, you know, the doors are open, and you can come in any time and buy some batteries, and there's no line. So it's amazing that the Redskins have gone oh from from essentially the only thing in Washington that counts to Radio Shack. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what do you do? I mean, I guess the problem I've talked about this before. You can't fire the owner. I mean, that's what it all comes down to, right? I mean, you think Roger Goodell just sits there on Park Avenue and says, "Well, nothing I can do about it." I mean, so I mean, that what else can you think about it? There's nothing actually. You, there's virtually no. A friends of mine have asked me that, but can't can't the NFL pressure? Uh, the owner to, to, to that never, that's unprecedented. There's, it's, it's like every situation like Jerry Richardson was a few years ago, right. uh, because of, uh, other things, not just bad management of the team. No, much You worse. know, I, I think David Stern used to, to talk about, you know, he might have talked directly to the Knicks. You might know that's better than I do. Telling them, listen, you know, you guys are an embarrassment. You've got to be a better representative of the league, but they're not going to, they don't force anybody. In fact, as you know, the commissioner is actually employed by the owners. So, uh, uh, that's not going to happen. We're speaking to Norman Chad, the great couch slouch. I'm going to cut you off there, Norman, because there are other things I want to get to in our very limited time. Our producer, Dan Zakshevsky, has limited this segment to a solid 930, not a second over, not a second. Well, he wouldn't mind a second under, but not a second over. You know, I mentioned the letter to Trog Keller about us doing a podcast about our doing a podcast, if I'm going to be grammatically correct. And, um, you know, I just sent it and I mentioned to you before we went on the air that I'd done that. And you said, you know, it's always better to think things over, to take your time, write something, don't hit send. Isn't that the problem today that people don't have editors, that they don't take the time to really consider a position before putting it out there into the world where now it will last forever? As you know, if I, if I were 10 or 15 years younger and of that persuasion, you know, I would kiss you on the lips and marry you because that whole concept, I, I walk around all day thinking about that. But the problem with the, the, especially the Twitter culture right now, is that you have to uh, react to everything immediately. And this happens in, in media and this certainly happens in sports media. If you don't react immediately, you're not part of the game. You're not in the new mainstream. And that is a terrible way to think. There's a reason to step back 
for a moment and consider something before you open your mouth or before you write something. And that's because then you, you think about it and you actually consider different sides of an argument instead of just immediately going out and going, bang, this is what I think, bang, this is what it is, bang, I've got to take. You know, what's, what's next? You know, that type of mentality is okay if you're sitting uh, in the old days, you're sitting on your front stoop with your neighbor or if you're sitting in a local bar with your friend. But for the media to do that, and the sports media does that, and of course, talk radio, talk TV, everything does that. And of course, Twitter is the worst offender of that. Is It just doesn't serve us really well. So I hate the fact that if you don't have an immediate opinion, then you're not even allowed to have an opinion, and they move on to something else. And the opinion that you put out there is something that you should have sat back, thought about for a few minutes, if not 24 to 48 hours, before you hit the send button or before you go on the air and tell everybody, fill in the blank. And I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name names. By the way, is, uh, I don't want to go back to Dan, but is, is, do you all, uh, your producer, do you all hire based on, do you go to Radio Shack and get the second person in line if there's a second person in line? Is he a quota hire of some type? Is he a sympathy hire? But you brought up a great, great point that I am always thinking about, and people look at me like I'm you know, from not Mars, but at least North Dakota. Norman, thank you so much for having joined us. You know, it's, it's, always, it's always a pleasure to take nine and a half minutes out of my day, a hard 9.30, and talk to you all. And uh, <laughs> the next time I speak to you, I assume you will have uh, new help uh, off the air. We should only be so lucky. I'm going to write another letter to Trog. Norman Chad, have a great holiday. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.